In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. Now, we don't only bring you thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the series, let me tell you what the series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, to leadership issues such as gender balance, and also business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. specific time. And if you miss us live, don't worry, because we are on every major podcast platform. Now, you can also connect to me. Send me an email with your thoughts and your insights to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now, if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we'll make sure you take away something for either your business or yourself. Now, on to today's today's episode. This is part two in a three-part episode that we are talking about what kind of leadership lessons can we learn from our military leaders. Now, we started this last week, and we know that leaders, business leaders today face a lot of challenges, and they didn't, all didn't just start with the pandemic. But for hundreds of years, military leaders have been facing challenges that are even bigger than the ones that we face today. And we're going to talk about a particular historical battle and some of the leaders in that battle and what we can learn from this story. And our experts are leadership experts and historical experts. And our first expert is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. And he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership Strategy. And since 2000, he's been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and corporations. Dr. McCausland is a retired Colonel from the U.S. Army and former Dean of Academics at the U.S. Army War College. He is a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. And he is also the co-author of the book we're going to be talking about today, Battle Tested, Gettysburg's Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. And our second guest is Colonel Tom Fossler, and he has served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He is commanded an infantry platoon in the Vietnam War, a mechanized infantry platoon task force in Germany. He is a graduate of the Pennsylvania Military College, Georgia State University, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the U.S. Army War College. Now, Tom has taught military history, strategy, and leadership at the U.S. Army War College, and he is a former director of the U.S. Army Matillery. Now, Tom is also the second co-author of the book we're going to talk about, and that's Battle-Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. So welcome back, Tom and Jeff. Um, let's just start, you know, for those of you who didn't hear part one, can we just um, kind of give a kind of a high level of, of what Gettysburg battle was and uh, why it was so important? Sure, Kimberly. This is this is Tom uh, speaking out there. Uh, Gettysburg is a is a small uh, rural community in uh, south central Pennsylvania. In uh, 1863, during the American Civil War, uh, a three-day battle took place uh, here between 95,000 soldiers of the Union or Northern Army 
and uh, they often called the Yankees, and 70,000 soldiers of the Confederate or Southern Army, uh, often called the Rebels. Uh, the battle is important in American history because occurring at roughly the midpoint of a four-year civil war, some see it as a turning point in that war in favor of the North, in favor of the United States government, as the country will be uh, reunited politically, socially, and economically uh, following the Northern victory at the end of the war. With over 1,300 monuments and markers, the Gettysburg battlefield is the best preserved uh, and marked of a couple hundred Civil War battlefields across the eastern half of, of, uh, of the United States. Prior to the COVID pandemic, the Gettysburg battlefield received well over a half million national and international visitors each year. It is on this battlefield that for the last 10 years, Jeff and I have conducted leadership seminars using the battle and the military leaders who led soldiers here as a case study of leadership during a crisis. Organizational effectiveness during a crisis and, cha- and uh, a challenging during a challenging period is also examined. Uh, we believe that the leadership attributes and competencies which we discuss, although military in their origin, are equally applicable to the civilian corporate world and inclusive of all occupations and nationalities. And Tom, uh, just to, for our listeners um, to give a little bit more context to this, last time we talked in part one, I think you, you made a reference to that in these armories there, there were 583 senior leaders. So we have a lot to learn from 583 senior leaders. And they weren't all military. They came from all walks of life. That's correct. And that, that, that count, uh, um, Kimberly, is just for the Northern Army, 583 okay. general officers. So I think we can call them senior leaders. The Confederacy had uh, 400 and some, a lesser number. But the important thing is, for the Northern Army, for the, for the North, the Union Army, of those 583 uh, senior leaders, only a third of them, only one third, one of every three were professional soldiers. Mm-hmm. When I say professional, I'm talking about someone uh, trained, educated, uh, and experienced uh, in the art of war as a soldier. Mm-hmm. The remaining two-thirds, interestingly enough, were judges. They were lawyers. They were bankers. They were businessmen. They were politicians who had to learn very quickly uh, the art of war mm-hmm. and, uh, and exercise their leadership accordingly. Yeah. Okay, so that gives us a great, thank you, Tom. Um, So to continue from our discussion from last time, we're talking about making critical decisions. And um, Jeff, I think, you know, somewhere in your book, you talk about the power of the few. Um, How does that relate to Gettysburg and what does that mean? Yeah, and before I do that, let me add one footnote to what you and Tom were just talking about, Kimberly, and that is the why of Gettysburg. Why would you use this particular battle? First of all, it's iconic. It's it's the American Civil War, which Ken Burns, when he did that long documentary on the Civil War, once said that all the events in our history as Americans prior to the Civil War led to it, and everything that's happened after the Civil War was a consequence. And we see that even today, I believe, in the 21st century. So it was that an iconic event. Gettysburg is an iconic battle within that event, in that on that particular day, the entire future of the nation hung in the balance. And there's only two battles in our history in which I thought that was the case. We fought a lot of battles, won some, lost some, but only two did our future really hang in the balance. And those were, first of all, Valley for, uh, uh, Battle of Yorktown, forgive me, uh, where as if we lost at Yorktown, and I've done leadership workshops at Yorktown, and there was a good possibility we could lose, by the way, at Yorktown, then we might still be a British colony. If you lose at Gettysburg, then you can spin your history every out from there, and we might still be two separate nations, North and South. Abraham Lincoln might not have been reelected, and a whole bunch of things happen from there. So that's why this is so important. Back to the power of the few. You know, power of the few comes from actually a book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, a very famous book on leadership and how leaders should think about organizations called The Tipping Point. In that book, Gladwell looks at a whole bunch of different organizations and says, what was the moment 
that the, that everything tipped for that particular organization, that everything changed dramatically for that organization or society. He drills down on what were the conditions that caused those significant changes for an organization or even a society. And in that, he talks about it several things. And one is the power of the few. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the power of the few really is in any organization, there are few people who not, may not be at the very highest, you know, in the corporate C-suite, uh, but what they take do and what they take action when the organization is in a particular moment of crisis can make all the difference about the future for the organization. It's very existence based on, on their action. And I think that's a very important thing for leaders to think about. L- let me give you a, a couple of examples why that's important. As you suggested, uh, we are developing leaders during the American Civil War. All corporate leaders, I would argue today, do two things every day. They accomplish whatever their particular mission for their organization is, and they develop the leaders in the organization to sustain and expand performance. That was true, and Thomas suggested that in talking about these generals. And as we get to the Battle of Gettysburg, this war has gone on now for two years. I would argue sort of mid-level, upper-level management uh, in the, on both sides has been developed, and it had to be developed because people are being killed and wounded. Abner Doubleday is a general at the Battle of Gettysburg, ostensibly the inventor of American baseball. But when the war begins at Fort Sumter, he is a captain. and Now he's a general in command of a division. And I think what we see at Gettysburg and looking at how this war turns out, really now there's a crossover in terms of the effectiveness of leadership. At the onset of the war, I think most people would judge better leadership was in the Confederacy overall, better military leadership at least. But as time has gone on, they have suffered a lot, a lot of casualties, and now we've seen through development of the hard experiences of war and the mentorship of seniors that uh, leadership on the union side now being better, and we'll see that in this power of a few, the influence of some people at a very mid to lower level management. You know, final word on that, and I'm going to toss to Tom for an illustration, Kimberly. When I worked on the NSC staff in the White House during a crisis, the Kosovo crisis in 1999, What I learned from that experience about this particular thing is people in any organization have positional authority. Where they sit on the wiring diagram tells you their authority, but they also have personal authority. How much respect we have for them because of their wisdom, their experience, et cetera. So in my particular section on the National Security Council staff, we had our executive assistant um, uh, whose name was Barbara, but Barbara had been working in the White House since Gerald Ford had been president. She had been there for well over 25 years. So I learned very quickly that as I was trying to maneuver my way through the bureaucracy, I might be really smart on a particular policy issue, but when it came to talking about process and how to move things along, I listened to Barbara. She might not have positional authority, but by God, she had a whole lot of personal authority, and I think leaders need to be aware of that in any organization. But Tom, why don't you give us an illustration of the power of the few from uh, the Gettysburg experience? Sure, Jeff. Um, you know, oftentimes we get caught up with, uh, we mentioned the the, uh, the senior leaders earlier, but it's not always the senior leaders that come through when we speak of the power of the few. I'm reminded of uh, men like uh, Strong Vincent. Strong Vincent's a colonel, 26 years old. He's an attorney from Erie, Pennsylvania. He commanded 1,400 men uh, at a place called Little Round Top, which will be one of the more decisive, uh, the perhaps the decisive terrain feature uh, of, uh, of the battle. And uh, he uh, was not supposed to be at Little Round Top. He was supposed to take his men to uh, an area called the Wheat Field, where the Union Army was under attack by the Confederates. But on the way to the Wheat Field, he gets intercepted by a courier who convinces him to disregard his orders uh, and go instead to the undefended little round top that was so important to the uh, to the Union defense. And he will uh, set aside his standing orders. He'll go to little round top and he will save uh, that position for the Union Army. And arguably that saving that position will help the Union Army win the overall battle. So, just uh, someone at mid-level, a mid-level leader making a timely decision is going to save the organization. Mm-hmm. 
And that that's a really great example, and it kind of shows on you're talking about um, when you you said something about mentoring before Jeffrey and 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 delic and. Um, trust in and these mid-level and I'd like to uh, we're going to take a short break and I'd like to explore that a little bit more and talk about you know um, how you delegate things throughout throughout the organization and how you delegate it throughout the army using the examples we have so for our listeners we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy and he has also he has trained internationally and nationally and he is a co-author of Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century and we're also talking with Colonel Tom Fossler and he served 30 years in the US Army and commanded infantries in Vietnam and in Germany and if you'd like to reach out to them you can reach out to them on Diamond Six Leadership on almost all social media channels. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, you can reach out to him under Jeffrey McCausland on and LinkedIn and on Twitter under McCausley J. Okay. So with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And today we're having a really great discussion about using one of one of those U.S.'s most historical battles at Gettysburg during the Civil War as examples for leadership. And to do that, we have two experts. We have Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he is also a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And we also have Colonel Tom Fossler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army, commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam and in Germany, and both of them are the co-authors of Battle Tested. Now, before the break, you were you know, giving uh, examples of personal authority and, and positional authority and developing people in the middle ranks. So if I'm a higher-ranked uh, uh, officer, how, as a leader, how do I know to delegate? When, you know, 
when do I know I can delegate something and how do I delegate it? Well, that's a great question, Kimberly, and it applies obviously to military leaders or leaders uh, in any particular walk of life, corporate world, not-for-profit, government, doesn't matter. Certainly as you move up, you have to delegate more and more to others. There's a difference between authority and responsibility. We have to give authority to others. Responsibility rests with us as a leader. And as you move up in an organization to greater and greater positions of responsibility, you have to give authority to others. You simply can't do everything. In the military, we talk about moving from the tactical to the operational to the strategic level for military officers, for corporate leaders. It's the same thing, really. We're talking about direct leaders, those who are supervising people they can see, organizational leadership, and finally, strategic leadership. So as you move up, you have to do that. But it's hard to do. You as the leader have got to accept a certain amount of risk. Everything's not going to go perfectly. And if you uh, ex- if you uh, are unwilling to accept any risk, and when something goes wrong, it's off with your head for that subordinate, that employee that took that particular action, then guess what? You're not going to encourage an awful lot of initiative. People are going to expect that you, in fact, are going to make all the decisions. Empowerment is not what you do. So the leader then, as he or she moves up, has got to consider the following things, I believe. One, is this something that really about an 80% solution from my perspective will be fine? Let's be honest. There are a lot of things that organizations do that an 80% solution is more than fine. So I'm going to delegate that. I'm going to empower people because we'll still accomplish it okay, and that'll allow them to develop their expertise and develop their confidence. At the same time, leaders in any organization, I like to say, juggle a handful of glass balls every single day. These are the things that are critical. These are the things that if they hit the floor and break, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of of trouble. These are perhaps even existential. Well, if I'm the leader, those are the things that I'm going to reserve to me because those are are existential and my stakeholders certainly demand that we make sure and do that very, very well. You can also adjust giving more, empowering people and delegating more as they develop greater levels of confidence. And certainly if you've got a couple of subordinates, one of them, employee, running a particular project for you. They are very experienced. They've been working for you for 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. That you can give them an awful lot of space and an awful lot of authority. If at the same time you've made a new person, a brand new project manager, first time they've been a project manager supervising a team, you probably want to give them a little bit more close attention and coaching as they develop not only their understanding and their competence, but their confidence in what they are all about. I think it also, final word on this is you have to think through who am I leading? I think it's a fascinating conversation leading people across generations. And in my research on that, when you talk about millennials and now Gen Z who are entering the workforce, millennials are now the largest portion of the workforce, at least here in the United States. Studies suggest to us, and I'm pretty sure it's common around the world, that particularly for millennials and more so even for Gen Z, the number one thing they hate Micromanagement. They really hate micromanagement. Well, they still need a lot of development. They still need to develop their confidence. But I think this is another thing that leaders seem to keep in the back of their mind and understand on my team, there's a possibility they're getting pretty old, but I might still have a World War II generation person on my team in their late 70s. That's possible. Certainly, I'll have a few baby boomers like myself. I'll have some Gen X people. I'll have some millennials. I'll have some Gen Z people. And how I handle those different groups have to be done in a slightly different way. And that all comes back to this idea of delegation and empowerment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect example. And and talking about, you know, Gen Z um, and delegating, you know, depending on competency, um, I can see where, you know, (laughs) <laughs> that we, as a leader, it's quite difficult across those generations. But I'd like to come back from a historical point of view and kind of on this competency. So you have somebody you want to delegate to and um, and you you have to get alignment with that person. And I think, Tom, I'm going to ask you, there's a there's a really good example in your book of of how you get alignment um, and um, and what you can learn from not getting alignment. Can you could you give that example? Sure, Kimberly. Um, um, you get alignment through uh, through subordinate buy-in to uh, to the to the leader's thoughts and actions and and the plan that is that is developed. And we present uh, a discussion 
on organizational alignment based upon an incident that takes place uh, at the end of the first day of this three-day battle at Gettysburg. The incident involves the two most senior Confederate, that is the Southern Army, the Confederate, two most senior Confederate leaders, General Robert Edward Lee and his senior subordinate commander, uh, Lieutenant General James Longstreet. Uh, their forces have driven the enemy, the, the, the Northern Army, back to hastily prepared uh, reserve defensive positions on high ground south of the village. These two senior leaders meet then from a vantage point uh, where they can see the enemy position that's a uh, reserve position that's being developed. And uh, they discuss what should happen the following day. And Lee is of the opinion that if the enemy troops still occupy their hastily prepared defensive positions in the morning, the next morning, then he will have his army attack them there. Longstreet, however, is not buying in to Lee's thoughts. Uh, He believes that in the overnight hours before their army can attack at daylight, the enemy will have strengthened and reinforced uh, their defensive position to the point that it cannot be attacked successfully without high casualties. He advises Lee that they should maneuver rather than attack, maneuver the enemy off of his strong position. And then, uh, and then it uh, should rather than attacking it directly. Mm-hmm. Lee rejects Lee, Lee rejects Longstreet's recommendation and tells him that if the enemy is still there in the morning, he will attack them there. Um, and uh, Lee believes that there's never there's uh, they've never had a better opportunity to defeat the enemy army on their own soil, and that was one of their objectives in this campaign. Uh, so clearly, uh, the Confederate Army, at the higher level, at the highest level, is not in alignment as mm-hmm. uh, to what should happen on the second day. Yeah, to add that real quickly, Kimberly, you know, it comes back to the organization's mission. And Tom and I have talked about this frequently. The one thing that Robert E. Lee doesn't do, which he probably might, would be to use that mission to get alignment between him and Longstreet and say, hey, Pete, that was his name, Pete Longstreet. This is uh, our best opportunity to win the war. That's what our that's what our mission is to win the war. This is our best opportunity. This war can't go on because we can't sustain it from a resource standpoint. Robert E. Lee realized that, but I found no evidence where he tries to use that mission statement to get that alignment. And Tom and I often used another metaphor, which you may find interesting, and that is a great book I recommend to people is a book called The Boys in the Boat, which is about the U.S. Olympic re- re- uh, rowing team in 1936 from the University of Washington. Rowing being the one sport that demands the greatest alignment, if you think of it, because it's not Mm -hmm. the strongest number of rowers, it's the ones that are in the most alignment that is actually successful. That's a great story about how this coach tries to get that alignment on this team. I won't give the whole story away, but of course, they're the representatives in the 1936 uh, Olympic uh, Games held in Berlin the so-called Hitler Olympics, they are the uh, the entrant from the United States. And I'll let everybody figure out when they race for the gold medal, what team they race against. But you'll have to get the answer. <laughs> no, uh, I've read the book and the listeners do get the book. It's a great story. And and this alignment, uh, Jeff, you know, yeah, I, it kind of reminds me of the whole thing of cascading a mission down through a, a corporation. Okay, um, and you and you and the in the military, they have they have a saying um, to describe alignment as um, mission men and me, um, and that is kind of an underlying factor. Why is that so important? Because you want to get maximum performance for the organization by getting them all aligned, and the mission statement is that touchstone that brings everybody in alignment. You know, I was reading about Chris Nazetta. Chris Nazetta is now the CEO of Hilton Corporation. And Chris said when he took over Hilton, he he was convinced. And he has like 100,000 employees worldwide. He was convinced, you know, we're working hard. People are really working hard. There's no two ways about it. But he said what we didn't have was strategic alignment. Use back to the boys in the boat. We were, not, we were not all pulling the oars exactly in the same direction. So we weren't getting maximum performance, maximum speed out of the boat. So he said, for the first year that I was CEO and ever after, I spent the majority of my time traveling around the world, 
to various Hilton sites to talk to people who are part of the Hilton family and to point out to them, this is what our mission is all about and making them understand how they align themselves to that particular mission. And that's what you need to do, I think, is make everybody understand what I'm doing and how I draw what I am doing to the ultimate mission of the organization. It's a famous story about NASA. John Kennedy, President of the United States, creates the NASA. And so early on, he goes down to NASA headquarters in Florida for a visit. Kennedy's walking the hallways. He comes around a corner, and there's a guy mopping the, mop on the floor. Well, Kennedy pauses because obviously he's a politician. He always would talk to a voter. So he stops to him, talk to this fellow, and he says to him, what are you doing? And the guy leans on his mop and says, Mr. President, I'm helping the United States put a man on the moon. And that, to me, is a great talk about how we are aligned and everybody in the organization understands what only the organization is all about and what my role is and how I draw a line from me to that ultimate mission and, therefore, we can maximize performance. And, and Jeff, just on this, that's where a lot of corporations fail is that cascading on this mission. Um, what can they do better? Well, I can think they can do a number of things better. One is the mission statement is ultimately your guiding light, your North Star, as I said. I find it curious, and I always have a, and I have a test for corporations. I say, how many clicks on your website does it take you to get to your mission statement? And I would argue if it's more than one, you're not using your mission statement to guide your organization. And I've been on some corporate websites that I can't even find the doggone mm, mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed to me it ought to be right up, right up front for everybody our stakeholders, our customers, as well as our employees to look at. And I've got to talk about that like Chris Nazetta and use that as a planning tool. When I stand in the boardroom and my and my uh, hardworking colleagues are recommending new products for the organization or that we change things, what I need to ask them is how does that fit in our mission? How does mm-hmm. it fit? If it does, great. We might want to pursue that. Yeah. If it doesn't, do we have a lot of resources and devote to something that's not not what we're all about, or do we actually need to sit down and and create a a whole new revised mission statement that will help us then move into the future? Yeah, good point. So with that, we're going to, we're going to go to another break and I want to come back again um, and talk about this long, long street and Lee and you're, we're talking that it was not really, it was a confusion on the mission, but also, you know, talk about buy-in. How long do you wait to get buy-in um, from your subordinates? And for our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And he's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. And he is the co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders with our second guest, Colonel Tom Fossler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army, is commanded infantries, platoons in Vietnam and in Germany, and has a number of television credits on the History Channel, C-SPAN, and other channels. And this broadcast is also brought to you about by Cinda, and Cinda is a nonprofit organization in Europe promoting digital education for SMBs, and you can learn more about Cinda under www.cinda.org, and if you'd like to reach out to our guests, you can reach out to Jeff under Diamond Six Leadership on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, on YouTube and Instagram, and Jeff is also on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, 
Get hired into the career you want and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 35 years of expertise covering multiple asset classes to be bluntly and openly discussed by Troy Ecker. The program is Tangible Assets for Tangible Results. Troy will dig deep, provide insight, and give his listeners real takeaway value from his own experiences and inside secrets he's learned. No nonsense, real life experiences, and a man of broad expertise will tackle asset classes you can see, touch, kick, and feel. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Central Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Talking with the Texan. Worth your time. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to leadership beyond borders do you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to leadership beyond borders at gmail.com again that's leadership beyond borders at gmail.com now back to this week's program Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're taking leadership lessons from history. Um, we're looking at one of the U.S.'s greatest battles in the Civil War, Gettysburg, and trying to decipher what we can learn from the leaders that fought there and the situation that happened there. And we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland, and he's the head of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and Colonel Tom Fussler, and he has served over 30 years in the U.S. Army and commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam and in Germany. And they're both the co-authors of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. So, um, gentlemen, before the break, we, we, we heard the story of, of Lee and Longstreet and um, how they had this disagreement, and maybe it was because they, one was focused, the, the mission wasn't clear, but also there wasn't buy-in there from, from Longstreet. So, how, how much time should a le- leader work on buy-in before just saying, read my lips, and we talked about that in the first uh, segment. You know, it's a great question, uh, Kimberly, and, you know, the one thing I often say the leaders do is, that's different than anyone else, is they decide, and they decide when they're going to decide, and so, therefore, they manage the clock for the organizations. They manage what may be an organization's most precious resource, time, and the pr- resource that's the most inelastic. And so every leader has to make a judgment on that based on their own confidence and their own looking at the clock. Colin Powell used to say P equals about 40 to 60. And what he meant about that in making decisions, when you have about 40 to 60 percent of the information that you'd like to have, it's probably time to make a decision. Because if you continue to wait, we all know whether it's a military decision or a corporate decision, if you wait, then options will disappear and your competition will move forward and they'll take advantage of the environment. And even today, I think at times, you know, technology may work against us because we're inundated with information. I don't know about you, I get about 150 emails a day. A lot of them are informational. Uh, If I say, well, I got to read all those before I make a choice, again, I'm going to delay choice. So technology kind of lures us, I think, to delay delay choice. Uh, And as a consequence, leaders have got to be willing to make the call, take the risk, and at the same time, back to what we talked about a little while ago, remember that the responsibility of how well or how poorly this go ultimately the rest with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important. And um, just back to this Longstreet Lee uh, um, story, and Tom, you know, did 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 Lee finally get buy-in? Okay, um, what happened there? Well. Uh, Kimberly, actually, no, he does not. The, the, the argument, the discussion they had the night of uh, the first day extends into the morning of the second day. And Lee will give orders to make, to, uh, to make an attack. Uh, Longstreet uh, does not agree with these orders. 
And so what happens is Longstreet's reaction is that uh, he will uh, not be efficient uh, in ordering his men to pre- uh, prepare for, for the attack, nor move to their attack positions, the positions from which they will make the attack. And, and he will attempt, I believe, to slow roll the boss on this, on this decision. Mm. The result is going to be that uh, the Confederates will make the attack. The attack will be made. Lee is the overall commander here, and, and Longstreet knows he's not going to uh, uh, mutiny against Lee's orders, but he is reluctant to make the attack because of what he fears to be high casualties uh, coming for his people. Uh, but the attack will be made, but it'll be made eight hours, eight hours after Lee ordered it. Mm-hmm. And in that eight-hour interval, the enemy, the Union Army, in their defensive position will reinforce that position uh, and increase their defenses. And so it'll be a much difficult objective for Longstreet soldiers when they do attack. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in fact, they will not uh, be able to... Uh, achieve their objective mm-hmm. yeah. they'll be defeated and uh, just coming to Jeff how important in this in this story and in today in corporate life is it that um, each person really understands what their personal contribution is um, how does that play a role in buy-in well it's critical to maximum performance and remember that definition that we provided from at the very beginning of this talk and in our book by Eisenhower, the leadership's about deciding what has to be done and getting others to want to do it. You can only do that if they understand what their role is and how that fits with what everybody else is all about. So it maximizes performance and encourages them to perhaps, I think, demonstrate initiative. And also, I think it's fundamental to cohesion of the team, that they understand what they're doing is important to the overall organization and important to each other and their success. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, if you talk about Pickett's Charge, and Tom and I have stood where the Confederates will prepare that attack on the third day uh, and come out of this tree line and walk 1.1 miles to make that attack. But when you stand there and gaze across the field and you're moved by it, you ask yourself, what got these guys to do that? And I would say what got them to do that is they understand their mission, how it fit with the objective of winning the war, um, and they did it for each other because my buddy's going, I'm going with him. And as they go across the field, officers who are and NCOs who are behind them, that's where they were supposed to be to keep the troops online, were saying things like this, home boys, home, home is just over this hill. If we can crack this line, we win the war and you get to go home, um, you get to go home, you know. And during the current pandemic, I've talked to a number of people, particularly in the healthcare industry, and an education. And what I found is the cohesion of the team, then everybody understand their role is really underscored at a moment of crisis. A lot of people I've talked to in education who are senior might be due for retirement or in healthcare, nurses and docs who might be due for retirement. Almost in every case, they have deferred that because they're not going to let the team down. They're mm-hmm. not, they understand their purpose in the overall organization, but they also understand the cohesion of the team. Mm-hmm. And and there's a great example also of the team, um, Jeff and Tom, in your book. And when I want to bring this from just buy-in of one individual to more to more um, group decision making. And um, at the end of the second day of uh, during the battle, I guess there's two processes they had to make some decisions, and there were processes they had to do. And Lee took one avenue, and Meade took another avenue to get the buy-in of those groups. Can somebody, Tom? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I'll begin. I'll begin with uh, with the Confederate commander, the Southern commander, uh, General Lee. Um, during the fighting of the second day, Lee uh, observed the fighting from uh, Seminary Ridge, l- roughly half a mile from the f- front line of troops. Uh, during that interval of uh, Longstreet's attack, which lasted about three and a half hours, Lee will receive one message and send only one message. He has left the, the conduct of the battle. He's moved his uh, men into position as he, as he, as he should, but then he knows he cannot control it further. His subordinate commanders must control it. So he observes the fighting. At 7.30, the sun sets. And in the American Civil War, well, they did not commonly fight at night. 
command and control was difficult mm-hmm. enough in daytime, impossible at night. So Lee returns to his headquarters. Uh, he did meet briefly that evening with uh, his third corps commander, General A.P. Hill. Uh, but uh, apart from that, he kept his own counsel. Normally, after a day's fighting, his senior subordinate commanders, which in this case would have included not only Hill, but Generals Longstreet and Ewell, the commanders would have gone to Lee for, uh, for discussions, sum up what happened for that day, what are the plans for the next day. But it doesn't happen this time. Lee or uh, Longstreet and Ewell keep their distance. Mm-hmm. Instead, they send a staff officer to give a summary report to uh, Lee about the condition of, uh, of their respective commands. Consequently, Lee is going to uh, uh, maintain his own counsel in, in, this, in this process and, and arrive at his decisions um, through uh, a, uh, based on experience what happened in the past. He's going to make intuitive decisions rather than informed decisions because he does not have complete information of the condition of his uh, forces. And and what does Meade do? Meade takes the opposite approach. Meade will make informed decisions, and he's able to do that because um, he will send out um, uh, couriers to his um, seven senior subordinate commanders uh, for them to come to his headquarters for a council of war. And they do report as ordered to his headquarters in which he will ask each in turn about the condition of their commands. How many casualties have you taken? How much ammunition do you have left? What is the morale of the soldiers? Can you continue to defend from your present position? Can you attack from your present position? And through that process, he is informed. Not only is he informed, all the men in the room are informed of the condition of each other's command. So what this does is it builds confidence when the final decision is made. The question being, what are they going to do on the third day of the battle? They decide Mm -hmm. they're going to stay in defense. Everybody now, you speak of the boys in the boat. Well, in this case, through the process of informed decision-making and inclusive decision-making of his subordinates, Meade has everybody in the boat, rowing the boat in the same direction, and they have supreme confidence that come the morning, should the Confederates attack them one more time, they will certainly defeat them. Yeah. Now, so so from this example, Jeff, I'll go back to you. What can we learn from this? Well, we can learn, first and foremost, that these two guys were at different positions in their leadership moment. Robert E. Lee's been in command about 16 months. He's been very successful. <clears throat> He's only really had one tie. The rest of his have been victories. He's beaten a whole bunch of Union generals. He's an icon. I would call him in the South at that moment. Robert E. Lee is a rock star. Uh, George Gordon Meade has been in command a grand total of about four days right now. He was picked on the 28th of June out of somewhat obscurity. He realizes that a number of those Corps commanders outrank him. They probably thought they were smarter than him, and they probably thought they were better looking for that matter. But in any event, he needs to get that as well to get a bit more buy-in, take their advice, get their assistance. And obviously, in addition to getting information from them, he takes time to actually take a vote. And they decide that they will, in fact, uh, just defend, which is what I think he was going to do anyway. So it's, it's critical to a unity of effort in the sharing of information. Everybody, as Tom said, is aligned. <clears throat> and oftentimes, it's, it's more important to, to determine this in this fashion uh, so you've got a good understanding of your organization, but you're using that as a vehicle to get by. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 really just showing that the teamwork here um, is working. So I think on that we're gonna we're getting towards the end of our show, and um, I think those are some great examples. And for our listeners, we have a lot more examples coming up in our third part. Um, a parting uh, parting words from you know one parting word from you, Jeff or Tom. Well, I guess the parting word for me was, you know, one of the watchwords we talk about in, in Battle Tested, you know, is to uh, adapt, innovate, and overcome. And in our conversation today, we have seen leaders adapting to the environment as the environment 
evolve, creating new mechanisms for them to make decisions, and they are overcoming. They are in a competition. And the final word on that is all leaders need to understand that their opponent, business or the military, their opponent gets a vote on your plan, and you need to keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah. And Tom, last word from you? Well, I think for all organizations, it's 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 getting uh, everybody in the boat uh, from from the the planning process all the way through to execution of the plan. And so, I think coming up in the next session, we'll talk some about uh, about planning and that that process. Um, and uh, uh, how do you how do you get a handle on all the all the components that that go into uh, into a decision making? Yeah, and we will. We'll be talking about that in our next session. And for our listeners, we have been talking with Colonel Tom Fussler, and he is a retired U.S. Army. Uh, he's commanded infantry in Vietnam and in Germany, and uh, Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is also a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and they are both authors of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Now, you can learn more about Jeff's organization, uh, which is Six Diamond Six Leadership, and they are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also reach out to him on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And you've been listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. And we are also supported by a nonprofit organization, CINDA. And CINDA has leadership, does legislative white papers, and supports SMBs in digital within Europe. And if you'd like to learn more about CINDA, go to www.cinda.org. And please tune in to us next week for the third part of Battle Tested with Jeff and Tom. And until next week, I wish everybody a great week and stay safe. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.